You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All right, let's pray before we begin. Gracious God, it is our desire to give you and you alone the glory that you are due through our worship and through our obedience. We pray that our time spent in your word today might serve to help accomplish that glory that you would teach us and instruct us by the power of your Holy Spirit in the truth of your word. And may this be our guide both now and for eternity, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you knew it was coming eventually. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 11. There is a silver lining to turning to Ecclesiastes, and that is that we have somewhere between 3 and 29 messages left in the book of Ecclesiastes, so you can take heart at the fact that we are almost done. We're on the home stretch. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's almost done. Just two more chapters, chapter 11 and chapter 12, and we took a month off as we were going through our Reformation uh, series and theme, and one month is long enough for many of you to forget where we were at in the book of Ecclesiastes, and for the rest of us to forget that we were even in Ecclesiastes. So I'm going to take just a couple of moments to just quickly review, uh, rather than starting over at the beginning, as was suggested by Dave Rich, we're just going to take a moment to quickly review where we were at so that we're all up to, all up to speed. So Ecclesiastes is a book that describes in honest, in the most honest of terms uh, the vanity, the futility of this life without God. It is the under-the-sun perspective. And we have seen Solomon in a very honest way express uh, the frustrations and describe the, the difficulties of living in a sin-cursed and fallen, fallen world. And he gives us a perspective that is from under the sun, and then towards the end of the book, he sort of steps back out of that perspective and tries to give us a God's perspective on life. And so in a world where it is filled with frustrations and foolishness, in a world that is fraught with tragedies and turmoil and difficulties and destruction and disease and mishaps and misfortunes and all of that, how is it that we are to live? And the answer to that question is we are to live in wisdom. Wisdom is not perfect in the sense that it answers every problem that we might have, but wisdom is the better path. And so at the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is laying out for us what living according to divine wisdom looks like. And his goal is that we would get to the end of this book and that we might live our lives before the face of God. That we would fear God and keep His commandments because this is the whole duty of man. That we would remember our Creator in the days of our youth before we get too old to do that. That we would walk before God in wisdom. Wisdom is what enables us to live life for the glory of God and for the good of others in the sin-cursed and fallen world. So these final chapters, 9, 10, 11, uh, they have to do with divine wisdom and applying wisdom to different various and sundry aspects of life. In chapter 12, it is the summary chapter. At the end of the chapter 12, we get to the fear God and keep His commandments because this is the conclusion of the whole matter. That is where he's going with the whole book. But as you get to chapter 11, you kind of get the feeling that Solomon is bringing this whole book in for a landing, as it were. He's kind of winding down and describing uh, our approach to life and how it is that we ought to live life in the fear of God. And what we've seen is that if we are to live a meaningful life in a meaningless world, it has to be a life that is God-centered. If we're going to live a meaningful life in a meaningless world, it has to be a life that is God-centered. If we live life 
apart from God and apart from truth and the idea of judgment or justice or ultimate reality and ultimate truth and ultimate purpose, if we are to live life away from all of that, take God out of the equation, then all we are left with is despair and and hopelessness. That is the reality of life without God. Honestly. I mean, if there is no judgment, if there is no justice, if there is no life to come, then tell me, what is the point of all of this? And so the consistent atheist is one who would eventually... Uh, get to the end of his life and and completely despair of all things and say it is vanity. It's all vanity if all we have is under the sun. But if we are to live a meaningful life in a meaningless world, then we have to live it, a God-centered life with the wisdom of God oriented toward Him that we may remember Him, that we may fear Him, that we may obey Him. That makes for a meaningful life. And that is what Ecclesiastes and Solomon is driving at. So now we come to chapter 11. And as I said, you can kind of tell that Solomon is trying to bring this book in for a landing, as it were. These are some concluding thoughts. Uh, there's really just a three or four major subjects that are in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. And one of the main themes that we have seen is the theme of not knowing certain things. We've seen this all the way through Ecclesiastes. So today, we're not going to tackle all of chapter 11, which you might hope for. We're just going to do verses 1 through 6. So let's read verses 1 through 6. In fact, we'll just read all of chapter 11 because it's only a couple more verses. We'll read all of chapter 11 together. We're just going to be looking today at verses 1 to 6. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things." Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. The light is pleasant, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart, and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. And that's a perfect introduction to the subject matter of of chapter 12. So you'll notice in verses 1 to 6 that there is something that is repeated four times, and as I said, it is a a theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and that is the idea that we do not know something. If you look at verse 2, Solomon says, Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Look down at verse 5. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Look at verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening will succeed. There's a lot of things that we don't know, and Solomon has wrestled honestly in an honest fashion all the way through Ecclesiastes with all the things about life that we don't know. We heap up all these life's goods, and then when we die, who's going to take control of them? Do we know that? We don't know that for certain. Remember that was chapter 2 and chapter 3? I do not know whether the son who gets everything or or whether it will even be a son. It might be that I give it to somebody who hasn't even worked for it. Maybe the government confiscates it. Maybe somebody else takes control of it. Maybe my business partner seizes everything that I have. I don't know who's going to get everything I have heaped up. And and if I do give it to a son, will he be a wise man or will he be a fool? Solomon says, you don't know that. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. We don't know what the future brings. We don't know what's going to become of our things. We don't know what's going to become of our family. And not only do we not know what is going to happen, we don't know when it's going to happen. And so all the way through Ecclesiastes, this has been something that has frustrated Solomon. Now, you and I could live in the light of that ignorance of the future, 
we could live that in a fashion where we would be paralyzed. And we could wring our hands and say, there's just so much we just don't know. I just don't know what the future holds. I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to do nothing and I'm not going to take any risks and I'm just going to play it safe and I'm just going to live my life and keep my head down and I'm going to worry about the future because there's so much that I don't know. I just don't want to do anything that might not turn out well or perfect. We could be paralyzed by our fear of the unknown. Or we can live as Solomon says we should live. Cast your bread upon the waters, divide your spoil, sow your seed morning and evening. Do not be idle. So there's two different ways of of living in light of the unknown. You can wring your hands and live in fear and apathy and do nothing and, and be a coward, or you can live life boldly for the glory of God. Solomon is opting for the second. Don't let your fear of the unknown or the reality of your ignorance paralyze you in the present. Instead, he gives us, just as he gives us four things that we do not know in the passage, he gives us four very active verbs. You see the first at the beginning of verse 1, cast your bread upon the surface of the waters. Beginning of verse 2, divide your portion to seven or even to eight. Look at verse 6, sow your seed in the morning. Do not be idle in the evening. These are four active, aggressive action verbs. That's redundant, an action verb. A verb is an action word. But these are sort of commands, right? You are to do this. You don't live paralyzed in light of what you don't know, but instead... Live in a purposeful and intentional way in light of what you do not know. So here's the outline for these six verses. In verses 1 and 2, Solomon recommends that we take risks that are tempered by wisdom. Risks that are tempered by wisdom. In verses 3 through 5, Solomon describes the various things that are unknown and how we are to approach or live in light of those unknown things. And then in verse 6, there is the conclusion of the whole manner, which sounds a lot like verses 1 and 2, sow your seed and do not be idle. So let's look first of all at verses 1 and 2, that that we are to take risks that are tempered by wisdom. Read with me again, verse 1. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. And that first phrase, that first verse, verse 1, cast your bread upon the surface of the waters, that sounds a little odd to us, right? It does. Why would I throw my bread onto the water? Right? And even if it did return back to me after many days, would it really be worth eating after it's been soaking in water for a number of days? So what does it mean to cast your bread? What is the bread that Solomon is referring to? What does it mean that it will return or come back or you will find it after many days in verse 1? It's kind of an, it's kind of an odd phraseology to, to our ears, to the Western ear. We've seen that the idea of bread, as Solomon uses it throughout the book, it, it is a symbol of sustenance, a basic provision, right? Eat your bread and drink your wine. We saw that, the basic staples of life. Here it seems as if Solomon is, is using bread as a token or a symbol of your, your money, your commerce, your income, um, the, 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 almost like you would use the term seed as to what you have or the harvest of what you get. And he is saying to cast that out upon the waters. Now, what are the waters and what is Solomon referring to? This This verse has been understood two different ways, and there's a long history of interpretation with each of these understandings. Now, I favor one over the other, and I'll give you the one that I I don't think it is speaking of first. It has been understood to refer to a broad and uh, 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 gracious or a broad and generous charity. The idea of casting your bread upon the waters means to give, to do good to other people. Just send it out, right? Pay it forward, uh, give out to somebody, use your bread in, in giving to the Lord's work or doing good to other people and to do it broadly so and to be very generous. Your bread is your sustenance. So you take what it is that God has provided for you and you give it out to other people and you be generous with it and you, you spread it out broadly. The promise being that after many days that will return to you. 
in a George Bailey type fashion, you do spend your life doing good to other people and, and paying it forward and helping other people and giving them and doing kindnesses and sacrificing yourself to help other people. And then when you are in need, it will come back to you. Now, if you don't understand who George Bailey is, you have a pathetic life and you ought to figure out that this Christmas season. But in a George Bailey type fashion, you do good to others expecting that eventually it will come back and return back to you. And this would be similar to the promise in Scripture where it says if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you're stingy with your money, you don't give to other people, you don't help other people out, you don't show yourself friendly, you don't do good to other people. When you are in need, what do you think is going to come back to you? Exactly what you've spent your entire life sowing. But if you are generous and you give and you're kind, then you, you sow bountifully, you supply to the Lord's work, you will find that in the end, after many days, there will be an abundant harvest for you. Now, I think that the, the, the principle certainly applies to giving, though I do not think that it is giving or charity that Solomon is describing in the passage. Though The principle certainly applies. And if you have been generous with your finances and you give to the Lord's work, then you know both the physical and the spiritual and the, uh, uh, the many blessings that come back to those who are faithful with their giving and generous with their giving. So the principle applies. But what is Solomon describing? I don't think Solomon is describing charity. I think Solomon is describing industry. That is, the, the idea of sending out your goods or services upon the surface of the waters, expecting a return after many days. I, I think that Solomon is describing here our industry, our commerce, our work, um, the free exchange being a venture capitalist, to use that term, right? You invest in something, you spend money to make money. He's describing here industry and the simple idea that if, if you send out something in hopes of getting a return, whether it is investing or you're doing commerce, that this will come back after many days. And this would certainly describe, it would be a very poetic way of describing what Solomon himself did. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 22, we read this. For the king, that is Solomon, had at sea ships of Tarshish with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish came back, bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. Solomon's, Solomon's seafaring trade, as it were, made him millions. But it took three years for that to come back. Solomon would send out his bread, his sustenance upon the surface of the waters, expecting to do trade with other nations. And after many days, three years, that would return back to him. That is what Solomon is describing. He is describing the use of our resources, spending the money, investing the money, using the money in order to make a return on that investment. Now, the principle applies to a whole bunch of different areas. And the return after many days, I just want you to notice that Solomon is not promising an immediate return on your investment. Look, if you are a faithful giver, you may not see the return on your investment or the fruit of that until eternity. And we have to be ready to... We have to be ready to embrace that. It might be that God blesses you immediately in response for your giving. And I'm not talking about prosperity gospel giving and receiving. I'm talking about the, the ability to invest in a ministry or a work or in somebody else. And it might be that the, the blessings you receive back from the Lord, the confidence, the encouragement, seeing the fruit of that come to fruition, that might be something that you see in your lifetime. Maybe immediately. It may take several years for you to see a return on a spiritual investment. It may take several years for you investing in a missionary family before you begin to see the fruit of that investment. It may be that after you spend time investing in a business or a commerce that it takes a long time for that return to come back. But the promise or the, the hope is that you would have a return, that it would come back, return to you, and that you would find the return, the fruit of that after many days. So I think that the principle applies here in a very broad fashion. You can apply this to giving. You, you can say that when we give or invest in the Lord's, in the Lord's work, that he does reward that. We do get a return on that, not only in the sense that as, as those who give faithfully to the Lord's work, we see the fruit of that even today and visibly and before us and the things that we support and we see the fruits of those here in this world. But the, the 
magnified fruit of that has yet to come in eternity, when God will reveal what it is that our faithful and diligent service and giving has done for him. It does apply to industry. It does apply to business. We ought to engage or to use our money in an attempt to gain an increase. There's nothing sinful or wrong with being a capitalist in that sense. That We freely exchange and give out in hopes of getting a return for our investment. It applies to that. It applies to service. That we would serve, that we would hope to do good to others in the hope or expectation that we might see the fruit and that that might return back to us, even if it is for a reward before the Lord on the last day. So it applies in those various ways. But notice that Solomon is not describing here a foolish risk-taking. It's not just a gamble. You see, he is encouraging us to risk, to take that risk, to cast, and the idea of, of casting something meant to commit it. He's not talking about putting bread on the end of a rod and reel and casting it out in, into the water. He's talking about here just dispersing it widely and broadly. And there's a, a certain commitment that is entailed in doing that, knowing that it may take a long time before that comes back to you. You are investing yourself in that. But what he is describing, though he is describing a risk, throwing it out to the waters to see what might come back, though he's describing a risk, he's not describing a full-hearted, full-hearted risk-taking. He's not describing just throwing, betting it all on black. Right? And I don't want you to go up to the Kootenai Casino this afternoon and say, Jim told me I should take risks, and so I'm just betting my whole house and mortgage and everything. I'm betting it all on black 28. That's not what I'm suggesting you do. And that's not what Solomon is suggesting you do, because though he is encouraging us to take risks, it is a risk tempered with wisdom. Look at verse 2. That is why he says, we are to divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know the misfortune that may occur on the earth. And so, so if you are investing in something, you don't put, we, we have a way of phrasing this today, don't we? You can think, maybe some of you are thinking of a modern proverb. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's what Solomon is suggesting. You're going to invest in something? You don't put it all in one place. Why? Because misfortune may occur on the face of the earth. The word misfortune means a mishap or an injury, uh, some sort of a damage or a bad thing, an evil thing. You, you don't know what's going to happen. You, you do not know what misfortune may strike. And if you have invested everything in one thing, then you have done so in a foolish way. So it's, yes, risk-taking, but not just risk and foolhearted risk. It is risk tempered by wisdom. So you divide your portion to seven or even to eight. So if, if that involves investments, then you, you diversify your investments. We speak of having a diversified income, right? More than one stream of income. That's a wise thing. Two, two streams of income is better than one. Three is better than two. Five is better than one. So we diversify our income. If we give, it is wise, I think, to give in a, in a variety of different ways. We should support our local church. We should give there. We should also give to missionaries, and we should give to causes that are close to our heart. And as a rule of thumb, I think that we should give to those places that feed us. So places where we are fed spiritually, we give to support those spiritually. And, and there's wisdom there in, in spreading our giving and our doing of good off to, to many different venues. That doesn't mean that we spread it as thinly as we possibly can. So say your budget is $800. You say, I want to do good with $800. So I'm going to give it to 800 different causes. I'm going to send a dollar to everyone. Look at all the good I am doing. We're not doing any good, actually, if you do that. Right? He says, divide your portion to seven or eight, not to 700 or 800, just to seven or eight. Split it up. Why? Because you never know that investing in this missionary couple might bring you more fruit and more benefit, more blessing, more reward, and might do more for the kingdom of God than than investing in this other missionary couple. Investing in this ministry may produce more fruit in the long term than investing in this one. And so in the same way that you would diversify your investments, so you diversify your giving, so you diversify your serving. If you say that the only thing I do is this one thing in the church to serve other people. I do good to people, but it's this one thing, and I do it for 10 minutes every Sunday afternoon 
Rain or shine, that's my, that's my service. That's not wise. Why wouldn't you diversify what you do? Why wouldn't you spread that out among seven or eight different people and be involved in, in a multitude of different things? So it is risk-taking, but it is risk-taking that is tempered by wisdom. Why? Because you do not know what misfortune may strike upon the face of the earth. If you send out all your bread in one ship, and that one ship sinks, you've lost everything. So Solomon would send out his bread in multiple ships, right, different destinations with different intentions and different trade routes, diversifying the risk, taking risk, yes. You do not know what misfortune should strike upon the face of the earth. So the answer to that, or the way that we should live in light of that ignorance, is not to wring our hands and say, I'll never send out a ship because misfortune might strike. So I'll never do it. I'll never take a risk. I'll never take action. Colleges are founded and ministries are started and churches are planted and missionaries are funded by people who are described in verse 1. Not by people who sit on the sidelines and wring their hands and never take risks because you don't know what's going to happen. If you, if you are waiting to know for certain what the future holds, you will wait for the rest of your life to take action. Now, this is not intended to sound as if it's a motivational speech. Listen, this is wisdom, how we live in light of what we do not know. We're not paralyzed by the fear. Shouldn't be paralyzed by the fear. We acknowledge the risk that is there, but we take a wise course of action and temper that with wisdom, diversify that risk, but still take action. So we take action, but we take wise action. We do something, but we do something in a wise fashion. That's what Solomon is commending. Now look at verses 3 through 5 where he describes in honest terms the risks that, that we run. He has talked about the misfortune that may strike on the face of the earth in verse 2. If the de- uh, verse 3, if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether the tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. This is just Solomon describing two types of risks or misfortunes. There are the misfortunes that we can predict or anticipate are going to happen. And then there are the unexpected misfortunes that strike. So there are expected misfortunes and unexpected misfortunes, right? Every misfortune is going to lie into one of those two categories. There are things that happen that you can anticipate they're going to happen. And they're most certainly going to happen. And you can watch it slowly approach. You can see the danger approaching. An example of this is the clouds that are full of water. They will dump it on the face of the earth. The clouds... Just this last week, when we were when I was over at the, the new church building, we needed one or two more days of dry weather than we actually got. Right? So on that day, it's sunny, it's warm, and it changed fast, didn't it? It's sunny, it's warm, and I'm outside in a t-shirt watching the clouds start to gather and start to roll in, and they got darker and darker and thicker and thicker and more ominous. You could see it coming two days away before the cold and the snow actually struck us. And so it happened. Right? The clouds were full and they dumped on us. You can anticipate it. You can expect it. You can't time it. You can't do anything about it. But it is an anticipated or unexpected catastrophe. Now, when the rains, when the clouds pour down rain, if it happens right after you've sown seed, that's great. But if it happens right before you're about to harvest, that's horrible. And if, it's, and if the clouds are gathering right before you're about to harvest, all you can do is sit there and watch the clouds come in, knowing that those clouds, which have gathered up the water, are going to dump that water on the face of the earth all over my crop that I need to harvest. That's an anticipated or expected misfortune or catastrophe. But then there are unexpected or unanticipated misfortunes like the one described in verse 3 with the tree falling toward the south or toward the north. Those are two points on the compass. This was a Hebrew way of describing something that could happen in any direction. Falls toward the north or toward the south, and he's not limiting it to two points. He is saying whether it's toward the north or toward the south or anywhere in between on the east side or the west side. In other words, it could happen anywhere. Where that tree falls, there it lies, and there is nothing you can do about it. And that tree comes, falls down, and it falls unexpectedly. It falls suddenly, and you don't necessarily anticipate or see it coming. You remember the windstorms we had a couple years ago, a couple summers ago? 
like two weeks apart, two massive windstorms, two weeks apart almost to the day. Some of you had house, have a house that, that trees fell on during that windstorm, right? There's probably three or four people here who had damage on their yards or on their equipment or on their house because of that. Did you see that coming? I didn't see it coming. The second one, I was driving down the road. I had to call Deidre and say, go out and ratchet down the barbecue and bring the lawn chairs in or we're going to lose them all because I could see it coming through Ponderay. You can't anticipate that coming. And when that tree falls, you don't know if it's going to fall on this way over this way or if it's going to come back and it's going to go the other way. There are mishaps and misfortunes to strike that you cannot expect or anticipate. And yet they happen. And where the tree falls is under the sovereignty of God. If it's in your living room, God is sovereign over that. North, south, east, or west, he is sovereign over that. Just see he is sovereign over all of the things. Verse 5, just as you, uh, sorry, no, we're not there, there yet. Verse 4, he who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. If you spend your day watching the weather channel, trying to anticipate what is going to happen, and using, using the weather as an excuse for not doing anything, then you will never do anything. That's the essence of verse 4. You watch the wind, and you watch the clouds, you'll never do anything. So you don't sit and watch the weather channel because you'll always say, I could go out and sow today, could go out and sow my seed today, but it's a little too windy today, so maybe I'll do it tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and you say, it's not windy enough. I need a little bit of wind. It's got to be cool enough. It's too hot today. It's too cold today. It's too rainy today. It's too dry today. It's the, these are, the day's not long enough. The day's not short enough, et cetera, et cetera. There's always a reason. You can always come up with an excuse to be idle. That is what he's talking about. And if you watch the clouds, and that determines what you do, and all you do is see the risk and never take the risk, never venture out upon it and, and, and wisely try and plan for the risk, then you will be paralyzed and do nothing. So he says in verse 4, you watch the wind, you will not sow, you look at the clouds, you will not reap, you'll do nothing. You can't let those external factors determine what it is that you are going to do. Now, to temper that, I am not suggesting, again, a foolhardy course, foolhardy course of action. In other words, I do not want you to go out this afternoon and rototill your garden and plant corn seeds. And then when your neighbor comes and says, what are you doing planting corn seeds the 1st of November and six inches of snow on the ground, you say, well, the pastor told me today that I shouldn't be watching the weather and using that as an excuse to be lazy. I'm, that's what, what I am describing is somebody who uses those things as an excuse for doing nothing. Not the individual who might monitor those things for to seize the best opportunity to do something. Do you see the difference between those two? You, you can look at the clouds and use it as an excuse to do nothing, or you can watch the clouds and to find the wisest way to do something. But your motivation is to do something. And if you're paralyzed by the unknown, you'll do nothing. And you'll always do nothing. And you'll never do anything. Back in the late 1990s, when Deidre and I were married, no, sorry, early 90s we were married. Forgot for a second there when we were married. Early 90s, she's shaking her head. In the early 90s when we were married, we started discussing having children. And I didn't want to have children. I didn't want to have any children. Why is that? Because I don't like children? That's not the only reason. But the reason... <laughs> no, I like children. You don't lead to want games for 10 years with kids if you hate kids. Um, I had all kinds of reasons why I didn't want to have children. Do you remember that? The early 90s and the late 90s, those were the Clinton years. Do you remember how rough those were? Do you remember that? And I read The Coming Economic Earthquake and the coming economic earthquake updated, and the sequel to the coming economic earthquake. And there was, there was going to be a collapse by the year 2000. And, and remember Y2K? We were all going to be boiling tree bark to eat, unable to access our money because Clinton was never going to leave office, 
and his wife was going to take over for him. And God forbid that Chelsea Clinton would eventually become president of the United States after that. We were going to have the Clinton dynasty. Remember, and I had stacks of all of the, the doomsday or forecasts on my desk. And I would read these. I had hundreds of reasons never to have kids and never to do anything and never to take action on anything because everything was going to collapse. Everything was going to be horrible. Christians were going to be persecuted. And who would want to have a young child in the midst of a devastating collapse like that? So I could sit and twiddle my thumbs and do nothing and have no kids. I'm glad I didn't listen to that. I'm glad that eventually the Lord delivered me out of that and made me realize that if you always are looking for an excuse to do nothing, you will do nothing. And you miss that. If, if you do not venture anything, you do not gain anything. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. That is what Solomon is saying. Do you take the risk? Yeah, you take the risk. It's tempered by wisdom, expecting the reward. If all you do is look at the risk, you'll be crippled and paralyzed. Don't do that. If you watch the clouds, you'll never sow. If you're always looking for some excuse to do nothing, you will always do nothing, and you miss out on what comes as a result of you doing nothing. And so take the risk. But temper it with wisdom. He's not suggesting that we be paralyzed. He's suggesting that we do something with it. Look at verse 5. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. You do not know how the Spirit, this is how the ESV renders that verse, you do not know the way of the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. Now you notice that there's a bit of a translation difference and there is a translation issue. The NS, the NAS, start that over. The NASB, which you probably have in your laps, is just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman. The ESV translates the Hebrew a little bit differently and it says, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of the pregnant woman. You hear the difference? Why the difference in translation? Because in Hebrew, like in Greek, the word for spirit can also be translated as wind, or the word for wind can also be translated as spirit. And it can be used to describe the human spirit or God's spirit or the wind that blows. Um, and the, the meaning of the verb is determined by the context and the way in which it is used. The ESV takes this to understand or takes this to be describing the way that the spirit comes into the bones of a woman who is with child. And here's Solomon's point. Do you understand how it is that before a woman is even aware that she is pregnant, while the fetus is developing inside of her, the baby is developing inside of her, that the spirit of that person is in that person at that time. Do you understand that? You don't remember that, do you? But your spirit was in your bones while you were in your mother. That we do know. There's a mystery to that. In the very formation of the bones, the human spirit is there. And how that spirit comes into that zygote at that moment of conception and how it is in that, in that baby, in that womb. Do you know that? Do you understand the working of God in that way? Can you tell me how it is or when it is or where it is or exactly what the form of that spirit is? Can, can, you, tell me, can you tell me what that looks like when that happens? We, we can't understand that. We can understand sperm and egg and multiplying cells and the formation of organs at different stages. We can understand that. What we cannot understand is how the spirit is present with the bones of that womb uh, and that fetus being formed in the womb of that mother. And Solomon is saying this, just as your beginning is shrouded in mystery, you, you don't even understand what happened at the beginning of your existence. Listen, get used to it because the rest of your life is going to be shrouded in mystery. That's the point. You don't understand the beginning. You're not going to understand the middle. You don't understand the end. There's all of this that we do not know. Just as we do not know how the spirit comes in the bones of that fetus and that baby in the womb of its mother, all of life is shrouded 
in the mystery of the outworking of God's providence. So it is, he says in verse 5, we do not understand the activity of God who made all things. Just as you cannot tell how it is that a spirit comes to the bones, you cannot tell what God is doing in this world. A perfect example of that is Joseph. Right, Joseph had a dream. That's great. It was a great dream. Then Joseph was hated by his brothers. That was bad. And his brothers sold him into slavery. That's a horrible tragedy to befall any human being. But then he became the head of Potiphar's house. That's a great thing. Until he found out that Potiphar's wife had her own designs, and since he wouldn't yield to that allurement, he was thrown into prison. That's horrible. But then Pharaoh's servants were thrown into prison, and one of them had a dream, and Joseph interpreted that. And Pharaoh's servant got released, and he said, Remember me before Pharaoh. Tell him of my plight. That's a great thing. He has an in now with Pharaoh to get out of prison. That's great, except Joseph was forgotten, and that's horrible. <laughs> and then Joseph is called out of prison to interpret a dream. That's great. He gets to stand before Pharaoh. But then he learns that there's a famine coming for seven years. That's horrible. See, ups and downs and ups and downs, and then his family arrives, and what do we find out at the end? At the very end, we find out that the reason for the brother's jealousy and hatred of Joseph, that was going to be used to deliver the entire nation and to preserve the descendants of Abraham through that famine and to grow them into a nation in Egypt so that God might deliver them, he might make of them a nation, might bring through them a Messiah, and it would all come back to Jesus Christ. All of that because of Joseph's brother's hatred. It took decades for all of that to unfold. And at no point could you stand there and say to Joseph, I can tell you what's going to happen as a result of this. Nobody could. Because the unfolding, mysterious outworking of God's providence is not up to us to try and predict. Our job is to do. That's it. Our job is to do. We do. And you say, but, but there's all kinds of uncertainty out there. There's always uncertainty out there. There's all, all kinds of risk to this. Yes, everything is risky. Some misfortune might strike. You're right. Except it's not just going to might strike. It will strike. We know that for certain. Misfortune will happen. But do. It is not our job to read the mysterious direction of providence. It is our job to do what God has called us to do in the moment, at the time, and to live fearlessly and boldly before his face in spite of what we do not know. And not to be crippled by what we do not know. Not to use our fear of the unknown as an excuse for idleness, but instead to be industrious in the present, even though we don't know what the future holds. So Solomon brings us to a conclusion in verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not well know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. He uses morning and evening as sort of the two ends of the day, and he's not saying just go out in the morning hours and then go out again in the evening hours. Again, this is intended to be, in, in terms of, uh, of Hebrew poetry or literature, literature uh, sort of a parenthesis, whether it is in the morning or the evening, and it is everything in between that he is describing. So you are active. In spite of what you do not know, you do not know what misfortune may strike. You do not know how God is mysteriously working out through his providence through all the things that happen. You do not know whether it's going to be good or whether it's going to be evil. There's all these things that you do not know. So Solomon says you go out, and rather than being crippled and being idle, you're industrious. You work in the morning and you work all the way through to the evening because you do not know that if it is the morning sowing or the evening sowing that's going to be successful. So again, this comes back to the diversified risks, right? The diversified investments. You sow in the morning, you sow in the evening. Chances are pretty good that one of them is going to be successful. So you, you are engaged in industry with the expectation that when I'm engaged in multiple things at multiple times and multiple ways, that something here is going to be successful. Something will, and that's the goal ultimately in verse 6. It is that it may be successful. We sow in the morning, we sow in the evening. So we work continually. We are industrious and we are diligent, we are consistent, and we, we are driven. Why? Because you never know whether one or the other or both will be successful. And so you divide your portion to seven or even to eight. And that is the conclusion of it. So he says in verse six, 
You don't know whether one will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. And that's just a restatement of verses 1 and 2. That we cast our bread upon the waters. That we're involved in these things and we do these things and we live our life. And there are all kinds of things that we do not know. Verses 3 through 5 describe all the various things that we do not know. God is sovereign over all of these things. It's shrouded in mystery, but we do not let the mystery cripple us. We don't let it paralyze us with fear of what is to come or what might happen or what we might lose. And instead, we still approach life with a boldness and a drivenness and an industriousness that diversifies the risk and diversifies the investment and diversifies our labor and our giving and our efforts so that we may see fruit in one or more of these different areas. So live life boldly. Now, why do we do this? We do this for the glory of God. And that's what it comes back to. Whether you eat or drink, you do all to the glory of God. This isn't a Tony Robbins, Joel Osteen motivational speech. Hey, go out and tackle it. You're the best. You're just already amazing. You just go out and be amazing. And by being amazing, you'll make others amazing. And we'll all be amazing together. We'll be amazing. That's not what this is about. This is about living wisely and boldly before the face of God. Yes, it is true that life is full of unknowns. And if we are crippled by that, then we end up doing nothing. If we watch and all we see is what we do not know and what might happen, we end up doing nothing. That's not what Solomon would have us to do. That's not a biblical or wise approach to life. A biblical and wise approach to life seeks to invest and to use and to, and to serve and to be everything for the glory of God so that we might honor him. To do our work, never questioning his providence, trusting that in the midst of the good and the bad, he is working all things out for his glory and for our good. And because we know that God is the maker of all these things, and because we know that God is working all these things for good, we can go out and get busy. We can get busy with life, not fearing the unknown. Not living in fear of a perpetual Clinton presidency. That's what we don't do. Because that will cripple us. Rob us of our joy and rob us of our future. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful to you for the wisdom that comes through the book of Ecclesiastes and for the wisdom that you've given in your word. We thank you that even though we live in, in ignorance of what is to come, we know that we know you you know all things. You know the future. You know what is to come. You know what you are doing in the midst of all of human history, and we can trust you. So help us to live boldly for your glory in light of those truths and to live in a way that honors you so that you might be glorified through us and through our efforts. Help us to learn this wisdom. Help us to apply it to our hearts, to our lives, to our giving, our service, our industry, and all that we do. May you be honored through our trust in you, a faithful God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.